You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Pleasure to introduce Dr. Aspen Brinton from Virginia Commonwealth University, who's going to be talking about a topic which obviously doesn't apply to us in contemporary America, political dishonesty. Uh, the part that we're really interested in is lessons from Central Europe because we're Krika, and uh, Dr. Brinton is the perfect person to talk about that. She's one of the only people I know who actually takes seriously readings of dissident, so-called dissident philosophers from pre-1990 Central Europe as they are relevant or should be considered relevant in the here and now of, uh, of contemporary world. Um, and she has a wonderful first book, uh, which came out in 2016, uh, published by Macmillan Palgrave on the philosophy and dissidents in this uh, region of the world and its relevance to the present. I am amazed and happy to say that she has a completed second book manuscript. How many of us can say our current projects have a completed manuscript attached to them? I cannot say that. Um, It's gonna be wonderful, it's called Confronting uh, Totalitarian Minds, and it's about uh, one of the most, I think, difficult philosophers to read from Central Europe uh, prior to 1989, uh, the Czech philosopher Jan Patochka, and uh, her framing of Patochka's philosophy reminds me very much, and I'm going to mention PBS because we've already mentioned PBS, public television. There was a program that, as a kid, I was obsessed with in the late 1970s, early 1980s. It was called Meeting of the Minds. Uh, it, was, it was moderated roundtable discussion, and people dressed up as historical intellectual figures. There was one with Marie Antoinette. I don't know if she was considered an intellectual figure, but historical figure. And they knew a great deal about those historical figures' philosophies. And then they had a contemporary moderator who would talk across centuries and across cultures. And so uh, what uh, Aspen is doing in the second book is putting Jan Patochka, quite rightly, in dialogue with figures that, for the most part, he never met or was never in dialogue with, such as Mahatma Gandhi. So really facilitating that, you're that moderator for us of the, of the discussion. So it's a pleasure to have her here, and I'll give the floor to her to tell us how to solve this problem of political dishonesty. <laughs> Guaranteed to have a way to, to fix this entire problem in the entire world at the end of um, 40 or so minutes. That's probably the first piece of political dishonesty we'll have on the table today. Um, There isn't, in a sense, um, a big answer to this, but the the lessons from Central Europe, um, I think, is dear to my heart, and I would like to thank David for his generous invitation to come and be a part of your community for the day uh, and to share some of these thoughts with you, which are in part derived from the first book and the the, the second project on Patochka. Um, it does have a, um, a bit of a, of a Czech bias, I will have to say, um, with some Polish thrown in. So um, I, I'm not, I can't really say I cover the whole region of Central Europe. Um, but it is really this period between sort of 45 and 89 where dissidents wrote within the context of what Václav Havel called post-totalitarian societies and what others and those of us in the United States knew was communist Eastern Europe. And it's the, it's the writings that came out of that period that are my sort of core fascination. I'm trained as a political theorist, so from a political science department on topics that are theoretical and philosophical, um, 
I've also taught in a philosophy department and taught sort of many different disciplines over the years. And so that this is um, trying to, um, in a sense, bring a regional interest together with political philosophy and that the, the texts themselves are hopefully in this presentation the center of what's, what's going on. I think, as, as David said, the bridge between the two is what I'm striving at. So how is it that you take an analogy from one region and one historical time and you connect it to another time? This can be tricky. Um, you know, we have this idiom in English, you know, don't compare apples to oranges, and the analogy process can be um, a, bit, a bit tough. So there's some of that going on here. Of course, apples and oranges are very similar. They're both fruits. They both grow on trees. They both nourish us through fructose. Um, and so... The, Nonetheless, the cautionary tale is there that there are certain differences and there are certain things um, to think about. But as a political theorist and a disciplinary background, which is um, very, very different than a historian, I think, is that the generalizing move to sort of go from the particular up to the general, it's okay in political theory and it's okay in philosophy. Um, so probably historians are the first that, that I may annoy with this. I mean, sort of scholarly throat clearing here. But the, um, the real core issue that I think has driven most of my work and most of my readings of these texts. And um, I don't claim to have read all the dissident texts. Um, I'd probably focus on sort of a kind of greatest hits idea. The, the, the core of that is really to look at how we frame, I think, our critique of our own self-deception um, in a way. So how do you find the architecture of the way in which you are yourself deceived and then how that influences politics um, on a much larger level. So the kind of dishonesty I'm sort of aiming at in reading these texts and in drawing on resources of Central Europe isn't the, the stuff we've seen so much of now, which is the bad statistics, the outright factual lies, the, just the things that just are plainly not true. Of course those are there as forms of dishonesty, but I think as a political theorist I want to go backwards onto the big, the sort of big forms of dishonesty that are behind the little forms of dishonesty. Right, that there's a whole kind of underlying terrain of, of, of ways that we lie to ourselves, um, the ways that we tell untruths first in our own context, and then that zooms out to a political context, which then, especially um, in a participatory or a democracy context, our lies to ourselves end up affecting politics um, in many different ways. And I think Central Europe um, is, is a great place to start with this, um, and the historical period that I know the most about as, as everyone in the room, I think, knows, the, um, the degree to which people in Central and Eastern Europe have had to deal with corrupt, authoritarian, dishonest regimes spans generations and generations and centuries. Okay? I mean, we could start with the defenestration of Prague if we really wanted to. But I think I have found in my own reading, as an, as, as an American who had sort of very little prior interest in the region until I started reading Václav Havel's work um, as an undergrad, what you find there is this sort of richness of the knowledge of how to deal with what I will call, in a sense, the big lies, the, the big sort of dishonesties that are underlying politics. So as I um, wanted to prepare um, this talk, I thought, well, what's the big lie? What's the sort of formal dishonesty that we are all living within today that then helps feed into and produce the smaller dishonesties, the statistical things, the factual things, um, and the rest. Um, and then I realized I was back what is what ends up to be the introduction of my Patochka book, which is um, I, I found myself back in Plato's cave. 
and then just Googled it for the sake of getting an image for the slide, and I found this wonderful artistic rendition of a modern Plato's cave, um, which has to, so you just sort of study this for a minute. Um, in Plato's cave in the Republic, you have the screen, and then you have the puppets who are like, or the, the chained people sitting in front of the screen, and they have a puppet show behind them, right? Um, and that the light is shining down and creating the puppet show in, in Plato's ancient Greek version, um, and so that this is then the modern social media version that we're all chained to our screens, individual screens, um, and that this guy with the arrow is a bit of a dissident. So I start my second book um, with the, the vision of really Jan Patochka being the guy who goes into the cave and says, hey, um, you know, this is all a very big lie, right? You, there's some structural lie at stake here that you want to look into. And so that there... Um, the scene is um, Jan Patochka and Václav Havel um, before Charter 77, before, uh, long before 1989, sitting in underground seminars, you know, reading Samstadt, having philosophical conversations as a way to sort of recover some bit of humanity um, within the totalitarian and authoritarian context. And that, that vision itself is that kind of recovered humanity um, is the start of that second project. But then I came back to probably the quotation that I think, to some rate, um, if it didn't inspire my second book, it definitely inspired that very first undergraduate thesis that um, took me towards my fascination with Central Europe. Um, and it was the Polish poet, um, Milosz, um, in Captive Mind. This was a 1950s work, okay? Um, so if you think of this being written in 1950, and I think it's 51, and then, a sense, very accurately, in a structural way, explaining what happened in 1989, okay? And the new faith, of course, um, in this quote, um, I'll, I'll read it aloud for the sake of the podcast. The new faith is, is communism, right? I mean, it is the whole structure of the Marxist-Leninist state. Um, and so he says, it's not hard to imagine the day when millions of obedient followers of the new faith may suddenly turn against it. That day would come the moment the center lost its material might, the center refers to Moscow, not only because fear of the military force would vanish, but because success is an integral part of the philosophy's argument. If lost, it would prove itself wrong by its own definition. It would stand revealed as a false faith defeated by its own God, reality. So this comes at the end of his account of various different characters in captive mind who have given over to the new faith. They've come to believe in the concept, or at least act as if they believe in the concept of the Marxist-Leninist state in sort of Warsaw Pact countries under the shadow of Moscow. And so Milos has described these characters, how they've become engaged in the lie, um, and what truth might have done for them um, to, to liberate them from something that is a little bit like this modern version of Plato's cave, that there is some reality out beyond that's there. So if we have on the table that sort of idea of a, of a big lie, the underlying structural lie, which drives other factors, I came this semester, I'm teaching in Virginia, to be asked to do a class on um, environmental justice. There's one chapter in my Patochka book which deals with his text called The Natural World as a Philosophical Problem. I had sort of dipped my toes in the water, so to speak, of some of this literature when I wrote that chapter, um, but in teaching the course this semester, as one does when one teaches a new course that the only one sort of knows what's going on, you have to, in a sense, flood yourself with the literature. And so I think over the last three or four months, I've been um, so, in a 
the flood is, is here. This is the flood in 2000 in Prague. If the water looks a little high um, from what you sort of normally see standing up in Letna. The flood, in, in my own mind, I think, over the course of the semester has been this tricky question of why it is that no one really listens to environmentalists. I'm interested in activism. I'm interested in sort of what makes people engage in politics. And I've transferred this to the course on environmental justice, where you read a lot about not just climate change, but about environmental racism and about um, the, the way in which companies and states and different actors ignore environmentalists, okay? I and mean, this, um, this is not a new kind of argument that's here. Um, and environmentalists really for the last at least sort of 30, 40 years have been harping on this, this notion that, as McKibben says in this quote, well, virt- virtually every successful politician on earth, socialist, fascist, or capitalist, text is a little cut there, agrees on is that economic growth is good, necessary, the proper end of organized human activity. But where does economic growth end? It ends, at least, it runs straight through the genetically engineered dead world that the optimists envision. This was McKibben's early work. He, of course, he's written a more recent one on oil called Oil and Honey, where he talks about getting arrested um, and going to prison um, and the importance of political activism, which I do have my students read both of them. And so here's this idea. Um, And so the, the sort of experiment is that what if this is the big lie that we're within? And then what do we get if we take this sort of tool from Central and Eastern European distance where they manage to, through however they're writing it, however they're thinking about it, they manage to sort of reveal this architecture of self-deception okay, that so many people within communist states lived within. Um, so that architecture of self-deception, there's a way to kind of like shine a light on it that I think methodologically... Um, is there, um, which the Meloche quote was an example of. What if you take that, and if you just ask the question, if you just take that lens, take that method, and stick it on economic growth, okay, what, what, what occurs? And so the, um, the thing that I think occurred as I've been doing that over the last couple months with this class and, and with my own rereading of, of Hobble for David's class and for sort of finishing up the Patochka manuscript when you sort of take all of that and you, and you put it there and you imagine that that's economic growth is the screen in Plato's cave and that it's a big lie um, and that it's not actually true, you start to see other things. And I've started to see other things about the little lies and about the factual stuff and about what I would sort of really call complicated, weird politics, um, I think which we all sort of implicitly know what we're referring to, but that the normal rules of politics from the last couple decades seem to be very unsettled. And then is this related to the fact that, um, you know, we could wake up one morning and the water is this high, and we all sort of know that. Like, how did that, that must make politics weird, right? Um, and so that that weirdness of the politics isn't related to a kind of blind dishonesty of our faith in economic growth, which, of course, is then feeding right into the climate problem and the environmental problem. And um, this, I think... And it's, it's been an interesting experiment. So what I, what I want to do now is to sort of go through a few of, of the texts from, uh, just, just a couple passages um, to look at from, from Havel's Politics and Conscience, and then to shift to say, what can we do about it? Because part of the title of this talk is Confronting Political Dishonesty, so that means we all should have some way to then um, look at these texts and look at Central Europe and say, 
they manage to walk themselves out of it. And there's a sort of method, again, to that revealing the structure of your self-deception, and what would that um, consist of? So politics and conscience and power of the powerless are the two pieces that um, I think I've turned to most in Václav Havel's work for a kind of political philosophy and a political theory that I think is different, challenges existing categories that we have in the US um, in a way that then sort of shakes things up enough that you can see things differently. And that's a, a bit what I take the discipline of political theory to be about. And so politics of conscience, I, I have the students read this in different classes um, because it, it starts with him describing himself as a child, not really knowing what pollution is, not really knowing anything about the scientific effects of any sort of poisonous gas on any sort of global idea, but he could look up and he could see smoke spewing up into the heavens, and he could feel it was wrong. Right? And so he compares this naivete of the child and his ability to understand that as a child as something that he then in the later in the essay connects directly to his political, to his political engagement, to why he became a dissident, why he would challenge the state, why he would um, go to prison, why he would, um, in a sense, write Charter 77 and, and do the rest. And it started with the smokestacks moving into the sky, or, or so goes his account. And then in Power of the Powerless, he writes a, a, a moment that I think in previous years, before I was sort of digging into this, I, I had just sort of read over. I hadn't, I hadn't like stuck to it. But it, it suddenly started to stick, right? The fact that he goes through all forms of dissent and opposition, the problems with communism, the problems with the West, marches right through all of that and says, well, there's only one, there's this one little thing that as a form of politics... Um, it has the necessary elements of what I'm talking about that everything else is missing out on, right? So nothing else has this. Western democracy doesn't have it. Communism doesn't have it. A third-way socialism sort of might have it, but he's not talking about that explicitly in Power of the Powerless. And, he quit, and, he, and this little quip is dropped in, right? The only social or rather political attempt to do something about it that contains the necessary element of universality, which he takes to be responsibility to and for the whole, is the desperate and, given the turmoil of the world, is in the fading voice of the ecological movement. And so this is in 1978. Now, the voice doesn't seem to be fading now, but there is, as I said before, this problem that no one listens to them. I mean, it, you sort of listen to environmentalists, but you don't really listen to them. And the, the, the ecological movement has not had its sort of full, sort of transformative effect on society that someone like Bill McKibben would like to see. We're closer than we were. I think my students are closer than, than I was at their age, and so that's a good thing, but it's, there, there's, no, there's no wave. It's hard to use water metaphors, but like floods and waves. Um, and so this sort of keyed me up to Havel's notion that, well, something about the rest of his politics channels through this, um, and so you can understand much more of what's going on um, if you understand that. And that reminded me... Um, in that part of my project, intellectually, in a scholarly way, is to take the voices of, of, of these texts, the voices of Central Europe, and put them into conversation with you know, the meeting of the minds, um, to put them into conversation with really sort of figures of the political theory canon or figures of, that are just sort of deeply familiar, um, and to say that there's stuff there in the, the thinking from Central Europe that matches or is as good at or can be put in conversation 
with the, the canonical text of philosophy and political theory, and they're just they're, they're legitimate and they're on the same frame. So one of the one of the ways that I think is helpful to do that is um, this is just my lecture slide from when I teach Max Weber's The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Right, deeply familiar, canonical, basic sort of text that you do in sociology and political science. And, and this was when I sort of went, yeah, that's the big lie, right? That's where the analogy goes from Havel's idea of the ecological movement, Patochka's sort of, you know, the natural world is a philosophical problem. Um, if you go sort of right through Weber, the idea, and this is, this is his very pessimistic ending of, of the Protestant ethic, right? That he sees this critique of capitalism is very different than a Marxist one, but it's still, you come out at the end of a figure where capitalism is an iron cage, okay? Um, the Puritan wanted to work in a calling, we're forced to do so, there's a modern economic order we have no choice but to participate in. It will go on until the last ton of fossilized coal is burnt. That's fun to point out that line because look at the date, 1905, okay? <laughs> Protestant ethic, Weber could see this, and then you could see what it's based on mechanized petrification embellished with a sort of convulsive self-importance. This he kind of this is a bit of a ripoff from Nietzsche, but um, specialist without spirit, sensualist without heart, the nullity imagined itself has attained a level of civilization never before achieved. Um, and then of course the last line, who does it best? We do. So I teach this to students and you know they're all sitting in college trying to get a job as you guys are your students and, and you're like, oh, that whole sort of rat race to get a job, um, it might actually be ideological, it might actually be uh, sort of a constructed world that's trapping me. And yeah, it is actually. Um, and so <laughs> you have these sort of minor existential crises going on in the classroom and then you sort of carry on. Um, but I think what I want to argue here is that, that Havel is doing something, again this is from Power of the Powerless, to, to say um, to, to say that, that the work um, the obsession with economic growth, the obsession with work, the, the forces of capitalism are themselves as deeply inhuman, and that there will be something about Havel's politics that comes out at the end that tries to address this inhumanity in a specific kind of way that, that, that we don't necessarily think of um, in, in America because we, we worship economic growth. We worship it as the solution to all of our problems, and because we do that, it, is, it then becomes the sort of structural lie underneath all of the rest of the weirdness. Um, and the difficulties in our own politics. Again, this is the, the hypothesis to put out there, right? So this is another passage where he goes after um, uh, people in democracies. They, um, that all of our freedoms and securities, you notice, um, do them no good um, because they're ultimately victims of the same thing. We're, we are in a democracy manipulated in ways that are infinitely more subtle and refined, he says. And all of those complex forces of capital accumulation engaged in secret manipulations and expansion, think of advertising, all the rest, dictatorship of consumption and production, advertising, commerce, consumer culture, and that flood of information. Again, in 1978, but that sounds incredibly relevant for now. So let's um, then try to figure out a way out of this. Now, th this is probably a controversial slide to put these three things on the same slide. Um, <laughs> now, I went, yes, they should do it. No, I shouldn't do it. Yes, they should do it. Uh, Workers of the World Unite is, of course, a reference to the, powerless, the Power of the Powerless essay where Havel says this is the sign that the greengrocer puts in his window to show his conformism, to show, his, um, he, to show that he's not a problem to the communist regime. Uh, the story 
that Havel tells is to say, well, of course, you put up the signs, you follow along with social conformity, you do that um, so you don't get into trouble. This is part of post-totalitarianism. Havel asks the question, well, what if you take the sign out of the window? The emperor is naked. The clothes are off. This is the first act of dissent. This is the first act of revealing the big lie. Now, the insight from Weber is that the way you conceive of work, your work, your job, your vocation, um, the relationship of that to social recognition, to the capitalist system, becomes in, in some way your identity. So part of the reason you're in, at the end of a, you're in an iron cage at the end of Weber is because your identity is tied up with your work. I would say that the first two are definitely political lies, right? I mean, these two are huge pieces of dishonesty because as you arrive at Auschwitz, um, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free, um, a vast, vast lie, okay? <laughs> and I think it's easy for us to see that the first one is a kind of lie. When the workers of the world unite, does that give you a better life and a better sort of, uh, an amount of social recognition and an amount of identity that's meaningful? At the end of the critique of communism, Havel would say no. You can ask then in the American context if how many people you know who really, and this is the hard part of the slide, um, does our work make us free? There's a lot of people in the US who would say yes. Okay, does your work make you free? What are you free to do because you work? Um, the work and the freedom go together, right, as part of the economic growth idea. And this is from the UNDP. I mean, it's there to ask the question, the UN, UNDP has a series of goals related to the UN's Millennium Goals, um, and on the web, uh, in a sense, on the website. So when they talk about economic growth, they put the phrase decent work with it. The question is, well, okay, why does economic growth have to go along with decent work? It has to do with, in a sense, the assumptions behind the structure of capitalist economics. Why doesn't that just say decent work? So... Back to the cave for a moment, okay? So if that's the cave, okay, or at least our question is to say, to take the, the ability to deconstruct the lie underneath the other lies as the, the, the contributing aspect of what the Central Europe sort of insight can give us, where do we go and what can we do? And so the rest of this is to try to, in a sense, say, how do you get out of the cave? Um, how do you recognize the, the lie that is there that is in some ways putting you in a position of self-deception about the relationship of the meaningfulness of your work, um, the underlying economy, and therefore the politics which draws upon those notions of identity that are related to your work life, um, that draws upon your own implicit notion that your work is supposed to make you free, so the only way to be happy is to have the right sort of work, um, and the only way to do that is to promote a politics okay, which champions economic growth. So that, that sort of three-pronged... I'm, I mean, essentially, I'm saying that's a leap. You have to jump from one to the next, okay? I mean, that the jump, if you kind of deconstruct the jump, you might get a whole different vision of politics, which will help you, in a sense, deconstruct your self-deception. Now, um, getting out of this, I'm, I'm going to turn to some texts and perhaps a little bit sort of shorthand, but I, I've put sort of six things together. Now, to act as if was one of the famous phrases within uh, many different dissident texts. When I Googled it this last time, it's now been taken up by cognitive psychology as a way to um, help you become a better person. You act as if you are a good person, and then you become a better person. There's, that, that's what happens on Google now. Um, but this was actually within many of the texts of the, the Central um, European dissidents. You act as if you have political freedom. You act as if you can organize. You act 
as if you can have a real university seminar, even if you're doing it in the basement of someone's apartment building in secret, um, you act as if these freedoms are there. Um, and the part of that acting as if is broken, I think, into two parts. So, so this is act as if you can actually still save your own soul, act as if morality still matters in politics, act as if your own your ambitions or your own economic growth okay, are less important than being truthful, and, and act as if what your grandchildren think of you matters, as if you have some idea of a self-conscious historicity. And this self-consciousness of your placement in history, I think, is the, the bridge between what are three goals, I'm going to sort of skip ahead to show the other three and then come back to the details. The other three, which are act as if how you relate to the community matters. If you understand your actions on a day-to-day basis have historical importance, you are part of history, then you're actually more capable, and if you act as if morality still matters, and if you act as if your economic growth is not quite so important, these things become more possible. You actually, sort of small communities of action of civil society, um, groups of dissidents, uh, meaningful communities that occupy the state capital and do things like that, um, as you guys know here in Wisconsin, those things become more possible if you've, um, in a sense, acted as if yourself and your own morality matters, as is the solidarity that, that is created. Okay, um, solidarity of the shaken is one of Jan Patochka's phrases. He, 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 as when Havel picks it up and uses that phrase at the end of politics and conscience, he says really that, that the, the charm of it and the, the worth of it is that it shows you can have solidarity across international borders. And then, in a sense, your engagement with the community acts as if art can still probe and unmask human contradictions, which is why there's a, um, a picture of a Kafka statue on the poster for this talk, which I'll come back to briefly in the end. So um, I, I don't want to sort of read aloud all of these quotes um, except to just sort of say where some of this is coming from. Um, but to ask the question about whether economic growth is the big lie, the first, the first citation is from, from Mitch Nink, um, from Letters and Papers from Prison. This was a very early work. He's talking about street roundups, ignoble court sentences, despicable radio programs. I think we probably have some of those going on now. Um, the distribution of leaflets by underground solidarity. OK, yeah, right. Even if you have all of that, you're not going to regain the normalcy or your respect for yourself. So you have to choose between moral and material stability. You have to give up some of your economic growth to be a dissident. Okay, deal with the self-defeat. Um, Malosh again, describing one of the characters who um, went over to the party and was, in a sense, corrupted by it. He concludes at the end that this guy could have been saved by a passion for truth. And if his desire to win approbation, right, his desire for his own social recognition and ambition and, and in a sense, personal economic growth, if he had been able to dispense with that, he would not have conformed to the corruption of the system. One compromise leads to a second and to a third. Um, until everything you say perfectly logical, but it has nothing in common with the flesh and blood of living people. There's a price you pay for this. And it's comfortable, but it's not, not relevant. This, on, on in a sense, your, the, the problem of your grandchildren, um, David was saying Patochka is one of the more difficult philosophers to read from this region. This is probably just a very small example of all of that. But he writes um, very eloquently about the notion of horizons, about the notion of human life being as if you need to live, not just beyond the horizon you can see, but of the false horizons that are beyond the next three false horizons. Um, And that you have to sort of live as if you're never going to get there. 
And much of um, this book, Body Community Language World, is about that, about living as if things um, were realities. And so that there, that's the sort of exercise of your grandchildren, and I think that's particularly relevant to the ecological movement, as Havel calls it, or to environmentalism. Um, The real environmentalists can understand what will happen with their grandchildren. Um, A lot of other people are in denial about their grandchildren. They're not able to do this. They can't see two horizons beyond, um, and so that they lie to themselves about what's going on now. And so that that sort of projection outward to horizons lets you see the present as potentially a sort of form of self-deception. Back to the sort of more social community ideas, Havel's notion of of civil society and civic association and the importance of small groups and small spontaneous communities forming in response to political injustice is, of course, all over the place in his work. This is just one, um, one small quote where he talks about structures that are open, dynamic, and small, like a community, groups of people coming together um, to sort of find your people and to find the community that you want to talk to is a pre-political basis for so much else that happens. And then this, um, Ivan Asen's already talked about this. This is another quote where he takes on the West. East and West, we have the same problem. We don't have a different problem. Consumption, advertising, repression, technology, cliche. The solution to that problem is to turn to the natural world and to turn to the natural world as a response to um, this, this irrational momentum of politics and economics. Okay. And that this is Havel quoting Patochka on Solidarity of the Shaken. Um, again, that, that spanning across international boundaries really matters. So Solidarity of the Shaken, he was thinking of those who dared to resist impersonal power and to confront it with the only thing at their disposal, their own humanities, Back to the economic growth, aspiring to know titles and appointments, okay, um, will seek to make a real political force out of a phenomenon so ridiculed by the technicians of power, the phenomenon of human conscience. So that the technicians and the conscience and the human conscience are two um, deep opposites for Havel in lots of ways. So now in the last five minutes, I want to explain the poster, <laughs> um, which, um, which was made actually by photographs that, that I sent in to you guys. This is a, um, a statue that commemorates um, Franz Kafka in Prague. Um, it's in the Jewish quarter. But it, um, it depicts one of um, Kafka's very, very early short stories. So it's a story that's not often even included in many of the volumes, but it's a story called Description of a Struggle. Now, in Description of a Struggle, the narrator, presumed to be Kafka, jumps on the, shul- on the shoulders of a character. Um, it's it's early Kafka in that they're not yet like inside a building, like you're not yet, it actually happens outside, which it struck me as like you associate Kafka so much with the rooms and the corridors and the um, claustrophobia of being in square spaces. In this very early story, it's basically two guys leave drunk from a bar, okay? <laughs> they leave drunk from a bar, they're new acquaintances, you're not quite sure whether they're going, what's happening. Um, They're not sure of each other. They start kind of telling stories. You don't know whether the main story turns into the sub-story. But one of the the moments right when he jumps on the guy's shoulders, who is not actually headless in the story, so the artist who made the sculpture interpreted the character as headless, which is quite easy to do, actually, once you read the story, the guy's kind of dumb, but headless in a metaphorical way. Um, And right after he jumps on his shoulders, there's this line where 
Kafka says, well, you know, the, the, the road was steep and cobbly, and I liked that, so I made it more steep and cobbly, so we had to go up even, even harder. Right? So he's riding the guy basically like a horse. But the narrator makes the road move, right? The narrator makes the tilt of the road change because he likes it. Um, and so this is the force of art, okay? Um, and uh, this slide here is the last thing you see at the Kafka Museum in Prague. I don't really claim to know exactly what this means. <laughs> I should have taken a picture of the check alongside of it. I regret I didn't. Um, the line to get into the Kafka Museum in Prague, if you go in the summer, is like 300 people long. The place is popular. There's some draw to this Kafka sort of allure with it. Um, and the art itself, right, the, the ability to, to create worlds and to imagine worlds and to act as if, right, is at the center of all art. I mean, that's what art is. It's the, the entire thing is an imaginative enterprise to act as if. And so Kafka's not the most helpful idea, but what's one of the things in this um, placard? Um, the threshold, the threshold is, is, is related. Um, the etymology of the word is related to Prague. The threshold is a deferred place, a postponed end, an unfinished work. Alienation, violence, and nihilism battle it out close to the horizon, but the quest for meaning persists. You get, in a sense, right here, Patochka's notion of a horizon, of the quest for meaning persists. You keep going and you keep going, um, and you create the horizon. You make the, the hill steeper if it needs to be steeper, or flatter if it needs to be flatter, um, and that something in art can do that. Um, and Kafka, in particular, shows that this is a strange and mysterious and bizarre process, um, and you're never quite sure it's how it's going to turn out. Which leads me to the, the text that's in the back of the poster. This is, um, the title of this is What Charter 77 Is and Is Not. It's a commentary text written by Patochka shortly before um, he died, after he was interrogated by the police for his participation in Charter 77. And it's the original text from the, the Samsdat journal, which was typed up and then the fast miles, right, so that they, they typed them on typewriters in those thin little wispy sheets of paper so they could distribute them to, in order to make copies. The making of the copies was illegal. The archive in Vienna of the Institute for Human Sciences has some of these, and I was there last year. And so this is actually a photograph of one of those pages, and it's great that the poster was made this way because the paper is see-through. You can, like, hold it up to the light and see right through it. And, the, you know, the spacing on the typeset is... Um, is often the rest, but that's in a sense what Charter 77 is and is not. You have this figure, Patochka, who gets involved in politics very late in his life. He's been controversial to the regime before. He's been thrown out of the university, not able to teach at different points, but he hasn't ever, in a sense, gone out into the street. He hasn't ever participated directly in a political, um, a political moment until he does become the spokesman for Charter 77. And in that sort of turn, he kind of takes a philosophy and he takes the art and he converts it into a kind of politics um, and sort of steps onto the public stage. And you, I mean, you end up with the tragic story that he does end up dying there short, shortly thereafter. But the poignancy of that, of that turn towards politics, of acting as if the politics matters, even if the politics is corrupt. This, um, in a sense, the, this list of six things is, is, is like the questions you would ask to say, well, what are and it's the big lies of our time. Economic growth might be one of them. There might be others that are there. But any kind of underlying structural set of assumptions that we have about politics or about society should go through that set of questions. Um, and that, that, to me, is the legacy 
of having read these texts from Central Europe, having really sort of thought about them deeply, is, this, is the questions they produce that can then be applied really in any kind of strange, distressing political context um, in order to, even if you don't solve the problem, you end up here with the quest for meaning persists, right? You, in a sense, try to keep going. So, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.